I marched into the office of the opinion editor at the Times and said, there should be an opinion column about food and I should be the person to write it. And he said, well, is it interesting enough? And I said, if economics is interesting enough, food is interesting enough. And, you know, I was right. I'm Scott Saul, and this is Chapter and Verse, the books and arts podcast from UC Berkeley and its Townsend Center for the Humanities. Today's episode is a truly special one. We have in our studio Mark Bittman, one of our essential writers on food and our food system. We'll be talking with him about his roots as a writer and thinker and about the craft of writing about food in a special Art of Writing edition of this show. Stay close. I'd be hard-pressed to come up with a writer who has had a deeper impact than Mark Bittman on our bodies in full, on our palates, our cardiovascular systems, our alimentary canals, and last but certainly not least, our brains, those precious organs that make sense of the journey our food takes from farm to table, or sometimes nowadays, from laboratory to table. We live in a golden age of food writing, writing that is not just Epicurean in spirit, teaching us how to live well, but also clarifying and penetrating, shedding light on the injustices and stupidities that riddle our larger food system and kill our bodies as they kill the planet. Bittman is one of our best epicures and one of our best clarifiers. One minute he'll show you how to cook cucumbers effectively or convince you that yes, it's definitely worth it to make your own ketchup. The next he'll unravel the insanity of our country's system of farm subsidies how our government promotes obesity by throwing money at the corporations that make hyper-processed non-food. Bittman is the author of 16 books, most recently A Bone to Pick, a collection of his recent writings from the New York Times, and he's author recently of The Kitchen Matrix, a cookbook which draws out how creativity and improvisation can be tapped to enliven the meals you make. Mark Bittman, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Beautiful introduction. Thank you for having me, Scott. Now, as I understand, you grew up in the 50s and 60s in Stuyvesant Town, um, kind of New York City apartment development for middle-class families. Mm-hmm. My so, parents were original tenants. It was built primarily for returning World War II vets. So you've written, a, you have a beautiful piece about your father after he passed, how he was a complicated optimist, I think you said, and you said he was both dogmatic and unyielding in how he ran the family, but also someone with a, you said, a boundless capacity for optimism. And I'm wondering how that family shaped your sense of politics or planted the seed in you to become a writer. Were you nurtured as a writer in that kind of family? Uh, Certainly my parents did not encourage me to become a writer. Maybe a couple of rabbis encouraged me to do writing. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. You know, I had to write a sermon for my bar mitzvah. So I was only 13. I was writing something I was going to read publicly that was, I don't know, significant, I would say. But I don't know. I wasn't good at particularly anything, and I didn't want to... um, I wasn't one of those people who went to high school or college knowing what he was going to do. Um, but I could always write, and I always wanted to write, and um, and I just did. I mean, I wrote my way through college. I bluffed my way through a dozen papers and, um, ashamed to say, wrote term papers for other people in exchange for money. Um, <laughs> but I just always wrote, and when it, I, I just... I could never say I have a passion for this subject or that subject. I'm curious about many things, if not everything. And I like to understand things and I like to parse things. I had no intention of becoming a food writer. I wanted to be a a 
writer of many different things, a general assignment reporter, as we used to call it. Um, I just wanted to write about whatever there was that was interesting. Someone once said to me, I'm interested in anything that interests me. And I like that. <laughs> I like that very much. Yeah. And was this shaped by the kind of crucible of the late 60s and early 70s where kind of American society was pulling itself apart and there was so much countercultural energies in the air? Was that something that you were drawn to writing about or more reflective essays or what sort of things were, were drawing your interest in that early time as a writer? Well, in college, I wrote about things that people told me to write about. And then, then there was a you know period of journal writing and just messing around. But um, then I became editor of a small, very small community newspaper in Boston, and the newspaper that was an organizing tool, basically, for a group of community organizers called the Somerville Tenants Union. And I was the, you know, I joined the newspaper committee, as it was called, and everybody else, or most of the other people said, great, now we can leave. And so it <laughs> so was a self-run uh, show. Ad- so ad- look- ad- sorry, advocacy journalism. Yeah, for like big time advocacy journalism, like, uh, yeah, name calling advocacy journalism, propaganda, etc. And um, I mean, of course, on the right side of things, but that goes without saying, but uh, this is like mobilizing for rent control and things like that. Exactly. Rent yeah. control, maintaining welfare, anti-racism. It's just, I lived in Somerville. It was at a time when it was 99, literally 99.9% white or maybe literally 99% white. Um, there, there were a lot of issues that, and, and um, they were all sort of at the forefront. There was a time that there was a time of optimism, maybe before that. By then, it sort of felt like uh, community organizing, in a way, almost felt like a come down from the late '60s, early '70s, when you know we honestly thought, in what you know, in what now seems like adolescent naivete, and we honestly thought we were going to make the revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just sounds it's almost embarrassing to say, but it's well, true. Well, that was in the revolution was in the air and, right. and those things had happened in some places. But I'm interested in how how your characterization of that time sort of uh cuts against how some historians have talked about the early 70s where they talk about it as a kind of a splintering of different mo- moments, but other historians who I actually agree with more say, actually, no, the the movement of the late 60s thought of itself as a movement of movements, of all this kind of constellation of different issues coming together. Um, is that your, that sounds like that was your experience. Actually, that's the argument I would have liked to have made. I'm not a historian, so I don't, I don't have the right perspective on this to make any, say anything authoritative. I will say that after 1970, spring of 1970, when we bombed Cambodia, when we imprisoned and murdered, you know, black activists when we, uh, students went on strike to protest the war, when, you know, all all of these things seem to be happening at once. I think that was when the Cayuga River caught fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do remember saying to, you know, some of my friends, this is the time to help people understand that all these issues are the same issue and that, um, it's a system, and it's a system that oppresses most people. Oh, God, I just sound like I sound like my old self. It's funny, but <laughs> it's a system that oppresses most people. No matter what your issue is, it's related to all those other issues. We can get back to this when we start talking about food, actually, because it's not dissimilar. But I don't think that message really got to a lot of people. 
And, and I think that community organizing, valuable as it is, valuable as it was, and maybe it's more valuable now than it was then, was in a sort of, sort of admission of defeat that we can't be, we don't have the power, we don't have the knowledge, um, we don't have the popular backing to address the biggest issues. Um, there's nothing, very little individuals can do about climate change, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so community organizing is, uh, in a way, a retreat to say um, we have to start at the base level and make sure that we that as many people as possible under understand or agree that the important issues are the important issues and that they stem from a system that. Um, that's has civilization in a death spiral. Mm-hmm. And so begin local with the organizing 10 people to do a rent strike in a building as opposed to we're going to take down capitalism. Right. Well, sad, but sadly, that's 40, 45 years ago at this point, and we still need to do that. Yeah. We're still not in a place to yeah. bring down capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. It may bring down itself, but yeah. <laughs> it's in its own death spiral, yeah. right? mentioned food and that how that related to radicalism of the 70s or your later career and there were I, I you know I've taught a class in the 70s we read you know from the Tassahara cooking and we read um, Ida Jones the grub bag I don't know if you know she wrote for the underground press about food issues um, were these things that were on your radar at the time did you care about food in in a political way in the early 70s or was it something you moved into later well you know really for me, I think a lot of it came from wanting to demonstrate that I was a non-sexist male so that I could cook. <laughs> um, so Which was I, a big I, problem in a lot of communes from what I've read. Right. Like the women, it's like here we have you know free love and then the women are all in the kitchen right. you know, making the food and the men are out gallivanting and doing what, what right. have you. Well, I, I will say um, – that I I probably approached cooking. I mean, I think my intention was right, more my intentions were honorable, but I probably approached it in a competitive spirit anyway. It was like, okay, get out of the kitchen. I'm now cooking <laughs> right. to show you that I'm not a bossy man. Right. But, um, <laughs> Life is full of contradictions. Right. We all have our little inconsistencies. Um, but I, I don't, Yes, I cooked from Tassajara. Yes, I saw the importance of whole grain and of vegetables and so on back then. It didn't feel so political. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't the understanding about the damage that factory farming, of course, factory farming was in its infancy, uh, the damage that factory farming was doing to the environment and to our health, um, the damage that the USDA and its recommendations had done to diet and farming, agriculture in general, um, the ascendancy of junk food, convenience food, and so on. It was early days, I suppose, but we I don't think I really started to see things that way until the 90s. So between the 70s and the 90s, you're, you're starting to do more writing, um, writing recipes. Uh, you started to write for the New York Times in that, in that period, or is that... Uh, I started writing for the Times in the mid-'80s, not in a big way, but, yeah, my first pieces were in the mid or late-'80s for the Times. And so then you're doing really this kind of food writing and recipe writing, which is itself a – I mean, it's a hard-to-master genre, and I think by all reports you do it very well. Was it hard to transition into that kind of writing or – 
I mean, this is a funny little story. Um, I was cooking a lot. I mean, I got into it. Um, and, and in 1980, when I, 1976 or so, I decided I was going to really be a writer, and I worked at it, and um, not much happened. But 1980... Well, I, just let me, sorry to cut you off, but what kind of stuff were you writing that people weren't wanting to I wasn't really writing about food. I was writing about... I was writing what I wanted to write, and that's... Somehow you have to find out what the people who are editing you want you to write. That's <laughs> yeah. a key thing. You have to be able to... Yeah, you know, if you're going to make a living writing, you have to get paid to do it. So what you want to write, at least at the beginning, is less important than the people who are willing to pay you to write want you to write mm-hmm. for them. So it took me a while to find that. And I finally found community, uh, alt- an alternative weekly that wanted me or agreed to let me review restaurants. So I started reviewing restaurants, but I was in New Haven, Um and there just weren't that many restaurants. And I was cooking up a storm, and I was much happier the nights that I was home cooking than the nights that I was out reviewing bad <laughs> restaurants. So I converted the restaurant column into a cooking column. Without permission, I just did it. And um, they were fine with that. I still wrote about restaurants now and then, but mostly when I went to a restaurant, I said, here's how you can make a recipe that's as good as or better than the one that's in this restaurant. And I don't know how I learned how to write recipes, but I, I must have had a knack for it because I've since discovered how hard it is to teach people how to write recipes. Um, but yeah, I was good at it. I mean, actually, I'm quite modest, as will probably come out in the course of this about my writing, but um, I do think no one no one writes better recipes than I do. But that's because well, I'm a writer, because it's right. English. And a lot of people come to writing recipes from some kind of weird place where they think they can write recipes, but they actually can't write a paragraph. Right. I mean, they, they're great chefs, but actually the, the recipe is a genre right. with its own very yeah. – it's like a sonnet. It's so uh, so exacting. <laughs> yeah, and well, in fact, there many more people have suffered as a result of bad recipes than bad sonnets. <laughs> um, Good point. But so, you know, you can give too much information. You can give too mm-hmm. little information. It has to be very clear. It has to be – there's sort of a structure. Yeah, all of that stuff. Somehow I came to it naturally. Um, and it is – it's not a fun form of writing, but it is a form of writing. It's a it's a form that has very pr- practical mm-hmm. reverberations. You mm-hmm. know, uh, all these people. I, I was just talking to somebody on the way over. Um, and I said, "Oh, I'm going to interview Mark Pittman. Do you have any questions you want to ask?" And she said, "Well, you should know that I dated somebody, his uh, person f- freshly widowed, uh, and um, he only the only way he cooked was by cooking your recipes from the Times. And I'm sure he wasn't alone, right? Uh, in saying this is the person who has." figure out a way to cook that I can incorporate into my life. And I imagine that must be quite rewarding to yeah, you to feel like... It's very sweet. I like, of course I like that. Yeah, yeah. it's great. It's great um, to hear. So there, was there a moment... You, you're, you're writing, you know, these columns that have great recipes in them. You're writing cookbooks that are selling many hundreds of thousands of copies. And is there a moment when you kind of shifted self-consciously to think, I want to take on more in terms of food policy, um, in terms of food politics, food justice? Was that a a, conscious decision or is there a particular project that led you there? It wasn't a a moment. It was a process. Um, I was really busy in the 80s and 90s developing a career and um, writing recipes. I wrote the entire first edition of How to Cook Everything by myself. It took four years of working on it every day. 
But I was also witnessing that things were declining in food. Some of the stuff I talked about early, earlier about what was going on in the early 70s was, of course, had matured by the mid-80s, early 90s. And it was clear to me that ingredients weren't as good and people were becoming sicker and people understood food less and advice was harder to come by and the environment was suffering as a result of agriculture and blah, blah, blah. But it didn't occur to me that I could write about that. Um, I don't know why it didn't occur to me that I could write about that, but it didn't. Maybe I was just too busy. But um, well, there's not you know, that many. Are there that, were there that many people who are both writing recipes or writing cookbooks and saying, "I'm going to do the kind of there you know, aren't any. There weren't journalist. any, and there aren't any. I'm yeah. sweet generous in that yeah. way. I mean, now there are some, but yeah, I if there's a genre there, I invented it. But I was gratified and a bit envious when. Um, Eric Schlosser wrote Fast Food Nation, sort of the first great political food book of our time, and um, really impressed with Morgan Spurlock's thing. And then Michael Pollan, who's a friend, came along and um, did you know the great the great uh, policy and analytical writing about food that he's he's done consistently for fifteen twenty years at this point. Um, and I thought, huh, I could probably. At this point, I could I could probably get the times to let me do some of this stuff, and I had some. Speaking of rabbis, had some rabbis in the other sense of the word at the at the times who encouraged me to start writing more seriously about food uh, as opposed to cooking, and so probably round about two thousand five, I did. So it wasn't a singular moment. The singular moment came a few years later, two thousand ten. Um, yeah, 2010, when I marched into the office of the opinion editor at the Times and said, there should be an opinion column about food and I should be the person to write it. Um, and he said, well, is it interesting enough? And I said, if economics is interesting enough, food is interesting enough. And, you know, I was right. Um, I have my own opinions about columns and how what their lifespan should be and what their subject matter should be. And who should write them, and et cetera, et cetera. But things did change a lot between 2011 when I wrote my first column, early 2011, until late 2015 when I stopped. And you see it as kind of a catalytic effect with all the kind of larger political changes. You know, there's kind of a critical mass of people writing and pushing things in a similar way, would you say? Or? Well, I don't take any credit for any of that, but what I do know is that when I started writing about, first of all, I was the first opinion writer to write about food weekly for not only a major American paper, but the major American paper. So that's, you know, I'm happy to say that. I'm proud of that, obviously. But when I started writing about, when I started writing food opinion stuff, there were half a dozen people doing it in the United States for outlets that mattered at all. And now there's not an outlet that would consider, except for the Times, <laughs> there's not an They're outlet bereft. that would consider not having someone write about policy and politics and their opinions about those things as you know as relates to food well uh, let's let's move talking about an actual column uh, from a bone to pick that's the collection of your columns and one thing i say for our listeners out there is that this is a great book you should pick it up it's one thing to read mark Bittman once a week a column once a week. It's another thing to actually have a lot of the columns there, and I think you get a sense of the range. There's some beautifully reported pieces, for example, on uh, what it's like 
to grow tomatoes in a kind of larger uh, farm setting, uh, reported from out of California, um, to you know more personal reflections, policy reflections. It's a great collection, um, and I thought that we might have you do. I should read it. I mean, thank you, and thank you for shoving it in my face because it's it's a, it's already in the past for me. So to read this stuff is interesting to me. Well, I, it's like journal writing in a way. So you go back and look at it. It's like, wow, I didn't even remember that. <laughs> well, I think you, you're quite a productive soul. Um, but maybe you could read a, a piece I really, one of my favorite from the book called uh, Bagels, Locks, and Me. And then we'll talk a bit about it. Okay. Um, this was written uh, April 29th, 2014, which was, uh, yeah, that's in the piece, I'm sure. A day that's a not insignificant day. On Sunday, I put on my running clothes, went out to the elevator, and pushed the button. In the time it took for my finger to travel from the wall back to my side, I decided that it was not a day for a run, but for a trip to the market. I slipped a coat on over everything and went to the store, where I bought bagels, lox, and cream cheese, along with some badly needed staples. I then came home and ate, while, of course, reading the Sunday Times. Sigh. Sometimes it's tough to be a cliché. The run never happened, and that's unusual in my recent history. I was a near paradigm of discipline this winter. And I'm pretty disciplined in my eating, too, at least during the day. But something happened Sunday, a combination, I suspect, of annoying little things that led to a short-lived mental breakdown. The cause isn't important. It's the response that most interests me. Consciously, the combination of bagels, cream cheese, and lox doesn't even rate among my top ten comfort foods. Getting a good bagel is more challenging than getting a good slice of pizza, on which don't get me started. I'm pretty much anti-farm-raised salmon in principle, and all the fancy names processors give it don't change that. Cream cheese is by definition bland. If I'd never eaten it before and you served it to me, I'd see no reason to waste my caloric allotment on it. But none of that seems to affect my cravings. I wouldn't claim that turning to bagels and locks in the physical newspaper on a weary-feeling morning is a genetic disposition, but I do come by it honestly. In the 1950s, my father, who turns 91 today, would send me out for appetizing, as these foods were called, for some reason buried in New York history, to Saul's on the corner of First Avenue and 19th Street. I picked up the paper on the way home. In the 1930s, his parents sent him out to Southern Boulevard in the South Bronx. This is not strictly relevant, but it is, I think, revealing. He was instructed to buy half of a quarter, that is, an eighth of a pound. For a family of six, that translates to a third of an ounce per person. I'll never forget the looks on my parents' faces when they first saw my older daughter grab an entire piece of lox, an ounce at least, and place it on a bagel. For 50 years, through my childhood, my adolescence, my adulthood, my kids' births and maturations, there are periodic Sunday mornings spent visiting my parents. And every time, there it was, the Holy Trinity. Every family, every ethnic group, and every person can talk about their cravings. The comfort food of others rarely appeals to us. It's our own that matters. I know people who drool at the sight of a bowl of rice, who cannot possibly resist it, and, almost needless to say, many people feel the same way about pasta. A Hmong I met a couple of years ago could eat quarts of a shredded cucumber soup that had sustained him as a child. To me, its flavor was as subtle as cream cheese, and it didn't even have the benefit of fat. 
Last weekend, I chatted with a third-generation Irishman whose wife is a vegetarian and does the cooking. He sneaks out once a meat for weak potatoes and gravy. My younger daughter seeks comfort in white beans with garlic, oil, and greens, which I often made for her when she came home from school during a particularly poignant period of our lives. Your environment teaches you what comfort food is. Until recently, before marketing penetrated every cranny of our being, family and friends had the biggest impact. The stuff that made them happy made you happy. You can self-train your way out of it, as many of us have, and save it for special occasions. You don't need a study to understand that for most of us, the foods we come to love as children are the foods that will cry out to us for the rest of our lives. We'll occasionally seek to regain those feelings, whatever their source. I feel the same way about mushy pillows, well-worn cotton t-shirts, a really beat-up couch, and the music from Carousel. But with food, it seems these preferences for traditional foods are fading. I don't think feeling sad about that makes me reactionary. I think it's important not to rob children of these kinds of memories and to encourage those cravings that are driven by genuine traditions. Even if your own comfort food isn't the world's healthiest, it's almost certain to be real. It's almost certain to have a link to your family's tradition. It's even likely that it's a preference that began with your grandparents or perhaps many generations ago. I recognize that some of this loss is a result of the homogenization and general loss of ethnicity we sacrifice in becoming American. I recognize that this is not a country rich with food traditions, though most of us crave some specific side dish, if not turkey, on the fourth Thursday of November. But when childhood food preferences are formed around food-like substances that were invented in the last 50 years by scientists and marketers looking to develop food, so-called food, that appeals to the same comfort-craving part of your brain without any consideration of tradition or quality, that's a bad situation. If a marketer can make it so that you feel the same way about a bacon double cheeseburger as you do about the special beans and greens or roast chicken your grandmother made for you, and then he makes that double cheeseburger available to you almost everywhere you go, he's got you locked in forever. That's just not the same thing as bagels and locks. Mark Bittman reading Bagel, Locks, and Me from his recent collection of Bone to Pick. Um, that's a beautiful column. It's really... I think it's masterfully turned, uh, and it takes that... I would, there are some things I would fix in there, but okay. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, you don't have that much time to revise as a, as a journalist, you know. Um, right. But I love how it takes that little small moment of personal decision-making and kind of presses the pause button and sort of enlarges upon it. So it kind of opens up in beautiful ways. How does a column like this come to you? Like, is it is it just like... Is, do you have rituals, or is it just uh, the process of starting to write and then seeing where the thoughts take you? Well, this gets into the column writing thing in general. And I think, um, you know, think about a rock band. So a rock band, they're teenagers. It's different now because, you know, you can record anything whenever you want it. But think about the days when you needed a record contract. Um you start, you're a band, you've got all these ideas, you've got this flurry of creativity, you're energetic, you're nervous as hell, you're, you're dying to make it. That's your first album. Maybe it's a little raw, but there's nothing more genuine. 
your second album might be even better. You've still got all this energy. Maybe you're successful from your first one. You still haven't said all you have to say, and now you're more polished. Almost no one makes more than two good albums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They generally need more than one creative force if right. they're going to do it, right? So the column, the column to me was like that. At the beginning, there was so much to say. There was so much to say. Um, and I, I couldn't. I couldn't write them fast enough. Um, I had, could not choose among ideas in a given week. I worked really, really hard on it. I had boundless energy. And as things happen, that energy waned. I became interested in other things. I had said many of the important things I thought I had to say. Nothing changed, right. by the way. But you can't just repeat yourself. <laughs> right. It's not like they banned antibiotics in the routine right. use in food, which I thought was going to happen, maybe not as a result of my column writing, but helped along by my column writing. And then it got to a point where it's like, okay, Frank Rich said this to me when I started writing the column. He said, it's like standing under a min windmill. You dodge one blade and you look up and the next blade is coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, was, it, it started to feel that way. It started to feel like, oh, Christ, what am I going to do this week? Some weeks it came easily. And I imagine this column came probably while I was walking to the store buying the bagels and locks. Or it could well be, if we want to get highly analytical, it could well be that the reason I didn't go running that morning and did go buy the bagels and locks is so I'd have something to write about for the column. Because this is <laughs> late. This is 20, April 2014. I had been writing the column <laughs> right. for three years. Right. So I'd written 150. Right. It's a lot. Right. So I, I, know, ironically, I your uh, procrastination efforts or, or what have you produced a different kind of column uh, maybe than some of the others and uh, has a different flavor. You well, know? you know, I leave it to other people to say nice things about my work. But, you know, I will say my work has been varied. I think I know when things are boring and don't try not to <laughs> do them. Uh, I'm very much a person of the moment. I am afraid of stagnation. I embrace change and that stuff all shows. Yeah. Well, one thing I like about the essay uh, or the column is the kind of tone. I mean, there's a sort of way that and I think this is in several of your pieces, uh, especially the ones that are less food policy oriented, is that there's a kind of a sense of self-awareness and also a kind of acceptance of imperfections. Like, here I am doing this. And, you know, there's another kind of person who write a column and kind of ber berate themselves and flagellate themselves for having had this moment of weakness. And, oh, if they could just go back to their dietary regimen, then they would be healthy. And that's what everybody needs to do. But you kind of take it as a moment to, you know, occasion for reflection. Well, and And you don't. You're like this is life is imperfect. I'm imperfect. Let's let's go with that. Right. Well, no, no single meal is going to kill you. I mean, unless it's poison. You know, your your diet is a diet is a life plan, um, and nothing that you do on any given day is going to change that. It's what mm -hmm. you do day after day, week after week, month after month that matters. So, yeah, I try not to feel guilty when I when I eat badly, as they say. Yeah. Do you think that's part of the key to your um, impact as a as a writer about food is that you have a sense of that kind of, you know, imperfections in people's lives or? Yeah, I don't know. There's this level of there's a level of analysis here that you're probably better at just taking a stab at than I am. I, 
you know, I don't know. I feel like a radical, and yet I read my stuff, and it seems to me quite moderate. So I don't really know what. Um, I think everything I say, even the things that that might seem radical to some, are quite justifiable and measured. <laughs> but I understand that that's not doesn't always come across that way. Well, I I think that's one of the interesting. Um... I don't know if you call it attention in your writing, but a productive aspect of it is that on the one hand, you're, you're calling for, I mean, big changes in the way our food system works. On the other hand, you appreciate how every individual makes choices and can't always make the perfect choice 100% of the time, even if they know what the perfect choice is, because we're complicated creatures. Right. Um, and we have certain cravings and desires that if we were to abolish them, we'd actually be less human. Right. You know? So let's but deal with the whole But the use of the word perfect is, is a problem also because there are no perfect choices. There you go. So um, you, you hold yourself to a standard that you try to hold yourself to a standard that's not adolescent, that's not immature, but that's reasoned and thoughtful and based on all the decent information you have. If you can't measure up to the standard, you don't beat yourself up about it. Um, but that doesn't mean the standard's wrong it may be too challenging but if you've thought about it then you know goals are goals are meant to be maybe approached not necessarily reached mm-hmm. you know is there a way that you approach your writing differently now that you know you you have a bigger platform when you had the times and and you're kind of more identified with a food movement so it's not like you're just a, a writer uh, scratching out these pieces but really I, I th- to many people you know myself you stand for a kind of uh, you know, somebody who's giving us a vision of where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, has that changed how you approach your pieces or come up with your pieces? Or is it more just like, I'm just trying to have something to say every time? Well, I'm not writing for the Times. So, you know, is there life after the New York Times? I mean, there there is, but what is the outlet for the things that I want to say? I don't have the answer to that question yet. I haven't really written anything that's been published in six or seven months and that's the longest stretch since 1980. So for 35, 36 years, I wrote weekly or more frequently, and now I haven't written for several months. I needed that. I have needed that. I'm not sure what happens next. Um, and I may, I may not do much journalism. I may do more books and less journalism, or I may go back to weekly Writing, I don't know. I really don't know. But I, you know, I don't think I'll be writing for the Times. It's not impossible. But um, I mean, I haven't burned any bridges. There's no right. bad blood. But um, but in a way, I feel like there's there might, there's something that I'm looking for. I'm not quite sure what it is. But I do want to write. Yeah. Well, it just seems like the forms that writing or journalism takes now are so varied. You know that like you've done those video pieces. You know that. That has a very different impact than just a, a column. You know, it goes viral in different ways and so on. And I think that the definition of a journalist is changing, and maybe that's opened up possibilities for you as well. Right. Well, uh, well Mark Bittman, on that note, I'm really eager to, to see what you're doing next, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here in the Chapter Verse Studios. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you. For much more about Mark's projects, recipes, videos, articles, you can go to markbitman.com. I want to thank also Gina Pollock, co-producer of Chapter and Verse, 
And I want to thank UC Berkeley's Townsend Center for the Humanities, which has provided funding for the show. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at ChapterVersePod and to check out our website at www.chapterversepod.com where you can find other episodes of the show. You can also find us on iTunes. And if you have something you'd like to say about the show, please feel free to review it. We'd love to hear your comments. So on that note, be well and eat well. In the field, yeah.